I would encourage you to memorize it, it's not very long. That's a lot of lesson, definitely we'll do it in Tibetan. And so I think we'll start each morning with that. We'll simply recite the seven line prayer three times, and then mala or no mala, and we'll go around mala once, reciting the Patakura mantra, that's a mala mantra, and then we'll go right into the main practice. It's not too much preliminary. Please find a Thank uh-huh. 
round of your head, instantaneously facing in the same direction as yourself. And imagine him blissfully dissolving into mind, melting down through your central channel, the crown of your head to your mind. And imagine your own body, speech, and mind becoming indivisible. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state. And to set your mind at ease, release all mundane concerns. And beyond that, release all hopes and fears concerning your own spiritual practice, how your meditation will turn out. Release it all. Give up all hope, ye who enter here. Just do the practice. Resting your awareness in stillness in the present moment, naturally clear and cognizant. And give up all fear, you enter here. Release all desire and aversion, release all grasping. Rest in this utter simplicity of simply being present in the present moment without directing your attention to any object.
manifest your awareness in its own place. And without directing your attention to the breath, to the tactile sensations throughout the body, let the rhythm of the breath come to meet you. It's already there. Your awareness of the rhythm of the breath is already there. So simply make it explicit. But you don't really need to direct your attention to it, as you bear in mind that you can be aware of the rhythm of the breath even in a dream, in which you have no awareness of your body. core feature of this practice is to allow your respiration to settle in its natural rhythm. So on occasion, as the in-breath is long, you note it's long. When the out-breath is long, you note that it is long. When the in-breath is short, you know that it's short. When it's in at the out-breath is short, you know that it is short. Allow the body, allow the breath to find its own rhythm as an analogy. When you're settling the mind in its natural state, over the long term, the sheer volume of thoughts, emotions, desires, memories will subside until eventually they all vanish into the substrate and into the substrate consciousness. For a person with a very, pa- very calm and pure mind, that may be quite a smooth trajectory from session to session, day to day. Just a gradual lessening, a quieting of the mind until it's totally quiet. But for those with more blockages, obscurations, then they are bound to experience upheavals. The mind gets quieter and quieter, and then there's an upheaval of some memory desire and emotion, but what simply continues practicing and it subsides of its own accord. So likewise here, as we very gently are aware of the breath, or the rhythm of the breath, if there are very few blockages, obscurations within the energy system of your body, you may find a gradual, incremental quieting of the breath, the breath becoming shorter, and then over the long term, an ongoing decrease in the volume of the breath. It may be quite smooth and homogenous, but insofar as there are blockages and obscurations in the body, then even after the rhythm of the, of the breath has subsided into short breaths, on occasion, they may become long again, even when the volume of the breath subsides. On occasion, there may be upheavals in which once again the volume is large. Whatever it is, let it be, just as in the practice of settling the mind in its natural state. The body is balancing itself from the core. So whatever the breath is, whether it's long or short, 
simply be aware of it. Note that it is long or short. With no preference, no expectation, and no regulation. And the final point, again the parallel with settling the mind in this natural is that the core of the practice is to maintain the stillness of your awareness in the midst of the movements of the mind, which over time subside until they too become still. So likewise here, the core of the practice is to maintain the stillness of your awareness in the midst of the movements of the breath. And over time, stillness will meet stillness. breath will subside. And as you may recall in the fourth jhana, it finally subsides into stillness. And the breath ceases for as long as you remain in samadhi. Let's continue practicing now in silence.
no longer hold you in suspense about this statement. It's from the 100,000 verse Prajna Paramitra, or Perfection of Wisdom. So the Perfection of Wisdom Sutra in 100,000 verses, and here's what the Buddha states in that sutra. You accomplish the first jhana and abide therein. You accomplish the second jhana and abide therein. You accomplish the third jhana and abide therein. You accomplish the fourth jhana and abide therein. And throughout that whole process, having achieved shamatha with access to the first jhana, then you fully achieve first jhana, second, third, fourth. And in that whole trajectory, something very homogenous is taking place. Uh, and that is your mind, of course, is getting subtler and subtler and subtler. The volume of the breath is getting subtler and subtler until you come to the fourth jhana. And then all Buddhist schools, the Buddha himself and all Buddhist schools say, at that point you get the singularity. And that is something that should be physically impossible does happen. And that is your breath goes flat. It just, there is no breath at all. So what happens then? Now you've hit a singularity in which something should be, that should be impossible in your body is happening anyway. In other words, biological laws have broken down. Because right? it shouldn't be possible. And then the Buddha continues, you, you settle in meditative equipoise. You really achieved a, a perfection there of meditative equipoise, of equanimity. You settle in meditative equipoise in the fourth jhana and experience numerous types of paranormal abilities. You can even cause the earth to quake. Be careful. You transform from one to many. Multiply your forms. You transform from many to one. You experience becoming visible and invisible. You pass through walls, you pass through fences. Passing through mountains, you move about with an, un, with an unimpeded body like a bird in the sky. You move through space in the cross-legged position, like a feathered bird. You move up through the earth and down into the earth as if moving through water. You walk upon water without sinking, as if proceeding on land. You billow forth smoke and blaze with light, like a bonfire. Quite exceptional claims. Kamachamerabache, who cited this in his great commentary to Buddhahood in the palm of the hand, he states, and I quote, the meaning of this is, is that if you have cultivated faultless shamatha alone, in the achievement of the fourth jhana, such realizations occur. They are tainted paranormal abilities, or siddhis. They're tainted because you're achieving them just by the power of shamatha. You don't need perfection of wisdom, vipassana, realization of emptiness, let alone realization of rigpa. That's all surplus, just by the power of samadhi. It's quite an extraordinary claim. It's tainted because you have not cut through the, the veils of delusion, of reification, grasping onto the inherent existence of phenomena, and then all the mental afflictions that come from that. So it's still tainted. They are tainted cities which are achieved by non-Buddhists, shamans, and so forth. And those Buddhists have no monopoly on this. You find this in contemplative tradition, shamanic traditions all over the world. You know? So nobody has a monopoly here. The only people who don't have it are the people whose minds are dominated by materialism. So we got left out. Everybody else got left in. We got left out. Because this ridiculous notion, the mind is the brain. One of the dumbest ideas in the history of humanity. If the achievement of such shamatha is imbued with vipassana, there are untainted cities. So now it's no longer tainted by delusion. The basis of all 
the cities and excellent qualities of the great adepts of India and Tibet is shamatha. Shall we read that again? I want to. The basis of all the cities and excellent qualities of the great adepts, the great siddhas of India and Tibet is shamatha. So that's pretty straightforward. So I know a lot of liturgies. I've translated quite a few of them from Tibetan Buddhism, you know, devotional practice and so forth. And so, so, so often, uh, in one that I recite six days, six times a day for decades now, it's as you're looking to the guru, the guru's mind indivisible from that of your, of the Buddha, your personal deity, your yidam, is saying, how many times you've recited this? Please grant me all mundane and supreme cities. How many people who are reciting that every day, thousands upon thousands of Tibetan Buddhists all over the globe, are actually cultivating shamatha? If they're not cultivating shamatha, but every day they're pleading Buddha, oh Buddha, give me mundane cities, please give me supreme city, please, please, please. This is like starting a business. And then as soon as you start the business, say, Oh, Buddha, please help this, the, the business to really flourish and be big success and not showing up at work. Just staying home and say, I hope it goes well. I hope it goes well. Oh, Buddha, bless me that my business goes really, really well. Many employees, really good product, excellent, excellent benefits and, and big success. Of course, I'm not going to work, but maybe so. Really, how stupid do you get? As if this was some hidden knowledge, you know. This is not hidden knowledge. So balance. Do am I do I have faith, believe that we can receive blessings that can really bless, inspire, empower our practice? Yes, I do. But not when you're just sitting around and don't you doing with the practice. That's silly. That's like you know, sending a letter to Santa Claus. So there it is. But those were definitely extraordinary claims. And so what do we do with those? Because they're so, frankly, from modern perspective, 21st century perspective, the kind of outlandish claims, right? Like, get to a point where your breath stops, and now you can do all those things, you know, by the power of samadhi. But again, this is widely, I mean, it's, it's all over the Pali Canon. These, the whole reference to the cities and so forth is in the teachings of the Buddha, and the most authoritative records we have of the Buddhist teachings in the Pali Canon. The same statements are made. There's nothing new there. The Hindus knew about these long before the Buddhists came along. Same thing, very deep samadhi. All kinds of cities come just from samadhi, let alone vipassana. That was common knowledge at the time of the Buddha. Nobody really doubted it. I mean, any more than, how many, how many of you really doubt the existence of lasers, you know, and, hol- and holograms and, and so forth? I mean, you could doubt it, but if you doubt it, that just means you've been living in a hole and just don't know what's going on, right? Because even if you don't know how they work and so forth, if you're just part of the society, you know, like lasers and cell phones and, you know, digital clocks, they're all magical, you know. Lasers are completely magical. Outlandish, ridiculous, actually. Except they do exist. And so that wonderful statement by Arthur C. Clarke, the great science fiction writer, I can paraphrase it closely, is that any degree, any degree of technology that is sufficiently highly developed will look like magic. So if you're, you know, if you were a nomad in Tibet, even now, or, or let alone 100 years ago, 
and somebody showed you a laser, they say, oh, you must be a great sadhana. Or you bring a cell phone. You've got clear audience, clairvoyance, unbelievable. How did you bring, what mantra brought this about? You know, if you don't understand it, it looks like magic. But what would you do for us, educated, modern people, intelligent, not gullible? We're not going to believe anything we hear, right? Even if it's said to be from the 100,000 Parajampanamita Sutra. You know, it's like, that's a bit of a stretch there. William James helps us out there. My, my good friend, William James. And he says, he wrote this, oh, more than a century ago. He said, where preference are, preferences are powerless to modify or produce things, Faith is totally inappropriate. So preferences. What would you like for the, in, for the, you know, how does gravity work? Do you like the inverse square law or would you prefer the inverse cube law? And would you like for light to travel at 186,000 miles per second or would you really prefer it goes slower? You know. Well, it doesn't matter what you prefer and it doesn't matter what you believe. It just doesn't matter. Give it a rest. That's the way it is. You know. So there are a lot of things like that. It's just the way it is. So you can pray for it not to be that case, or whatever you like. But, you know, faith, preference, and so forth, it's just completely out of place. It's irrelevant. You know. Whatever you think about gravity, it doesn't matter. There's something that's already true. But then he says, for the class of truths that depend on personal preference, trust, or loyalty for actualization, and then I quote, faith is not only licit, that is suitable, and pertinent, but essential and, essential and indispensable. And here's the punchlines. Such truths cannot become true till our faith has made them so. I think it's exactly true what he said. Exactly true. And enormously importantly true. That's my, my strong, oh, my adamantine conviction. That here, I mean, there's, a, there's an underlying question behind all of this. And that is, are we too late? I mean, if we accept out of faith the statement from the 100,000 verse Prajnaparamita Sutra, that if you feed the fourth jhana, that such extraordinary powers arise. Did they occur in Tibet? The Dalai Lama said he knows of some nun who flew back and forth the valley from a meditation hut. She's flying back and forth on a regular basis. He said he knows people who saw, who saw it directly, and so forth, and so forth, and so on. Or well, if you read Leda Blingba's biography, this fearless in Tibet, he describes some ama amazing cities that he, that he committed, that he performed, Leda Blingba. Or oh, read Tuku Ugyen Rinpoche's, his, his autobiography, amazing. And he talked about in his life and so forth, cities. So what is, how did we miss it by that much? You know, we who were born in the late 20th century, did we miss it just like, you should have been there. You, know? you should have been there. You missed India by a long shot, but you missed Tibet just by, the movie just ended. You know? And by the time the Buddha Dharma finally came outside of the kind of Tibetan domain of you know, Himalayan region, sorry, but you know, it's dead on arrival. But go ahead and do the liturgies and get some really good imprints, because this is going to turn out well in the future life. But you know, it's dead, because the chances of realization now are finished. All you can really do is study and teach, study and teach. But you know, realizing like they did before, well, you missed it by that much. You know? And 
your eyes are, your skin, most, not you, but most of you, your skin color is brown. Yeah, you're white. You're screwed. I mean, you're, you know, you're Western. Like, you guys are hopeless. You know, you're materialistic, you're, you're, you're boorish. Many of you with your white skin believe that the mind is the brain. I mean, ugh. So we can believe that. There are Tibetans that believe that. There are Tibetan lamas that believe that. There are also Tibetan lamas who don't believe that. There's no consensus. The Dalai Lama doesn't believe that, what I just said. Gautam Rinpoche doesn't believe that. Many lamas don't, but then quite a few do. So which is it? That extraordinary statement, that claim from the Prajnapanamita Sutra, is that only for old times, or is it, is it either complete fiction? Well, that's a possibility. I don't believe that. Or was it only when karma was pure, people were pure, everything, the dregs weren't so heavy, the fire dregs? Which is it? Might that actually be possible now, or might it not be? I can tell you the Dalai Lama's answer. I can quote him verbatim. A long time ago, somebody from Europe, I can't remember what country, but they had a private audience, and the fellow was going on. This is like, like four, more than 40 years ago. Say, oh, your holiness, we're living in such a time with the dregs. Everything is the dregs. Everything is so degenerate. Seems like realization in this, in this world, hopeless. And then his holiness' response was, and I quote him almost verbatim, and I don't think he's changed his mind. But I'm sure he's not. He said, oh, very true. It's very degenerate times. Just look what happened in Tibet. Yeah, that's degenerate. Look what's happened globally. Yeah, a lot of degeneration. I'm not quoting Verailen, but you know, that's a little tiny commentary. Then back directly to the quote. He said, but if we, in this modern world now, if we practice like Milarepa, then we will achieve realization like Milarepa. We're not counted out. We're not nullified because of the atmosphere, because of the year, because of other people. Other people can be degenerate as they like, that's their problem. How degenerate are we? That's our problem. So if we purify our own minds, then who says? Who says that that can't be literally true and couldn't be realized? Who says that rainbow body is impossible? Who says? We're going to be seeing. We're going to be seeing in Dujum Limba's writings. He keeps on referring to great transference rainbow body. That's the highest level of rainbow body. Padmasambhava achieved it, Vimana Mitra achieved it, very few achieved it. He keeps on referring to this as if it's still possible. Why is he doing that? When, you know, we're the audience. Well, he wouldn't waste his time if he thought it's impossible. I don't think. Why would a Buddha waste his time? Why would Dujumimba waste his time? So, if we don't really believe it, then it's not true for us. And if we feel, if we come to the conclusion, I'm not compelled to disbelieve that. If we're compelled to disbelieve something, then give it a rest. You know, don't believe it. But I'm not compelled to disbelieve it. Not all the lamas think that we're hopeless. Some do. Many don't. Not all lamas think such realization are impossible. And some do, some don't. So therefore, and physics and all the scientists, they really don't know the nature of mind in the universe. They have no idea, frankly. I mean, literally, no idea. What is the role of mind in nature? They don't know. So all of psychology thus far, 
is what I would call non-relativistic psychology. That is, relativistic physics is a totally different way of envisioning the entire physical world, where there's no absolute space, no absolute time, no absolute matter, no absolute energy. It's a very, very different universe than what Newton envisioned. But how do they know that those, were, in fact, were never true? There was never anything such as absolute space, time, and so forth. How do they, how do they know? Einstein came up with a theory in 1905 that it was false. You know. but how do they, they know? Well, they ran experiments. And the experiments are myriad. But where the falsity of the earlier assumptions becomes really evident is when you start moving close to the speed of light. And then you say, oh, no absolute space, no absolute time, no absolute matter, no absolute energy. We thought it was, but that's because we're going too slow. And it looks like they are. But approach the speed of light, and then it's just obvious. It's not true. It was never true. It's nowhere true. Thus far in the history of science, our science, our world, we've been dealing with non-relativistic psychology. And that is the only minds that are studied are minds that are moving very slowly. Ordinary minds with no samadhi. Psychologists who can't focus on anything for more than three seconds at a time. And subjects, you know, if they're really good, seven seconds at a time. That's research at Harvard. Seven seconds, maxed out. Those are the people they study. Those are Harvard undergraduates. Seven seconds, finished. You know. Those are the minds they've been studying thus far. Right? That's non-relativistic psychology. But how about when your mind moves, moves more metaphorically, closer to the speed of light? You achieve access to the first jhana. Well, it's getting close. Some unusual start things, relativistic things start coming up. First jhana, second jhana, third jhana. Oh, fourth jhana. Singularity. What he just described there, I won't read it again. It's available. I'm putting all my notes on the, on the internet. Uh, reading that, you'll find an enormous resonance, almost like verbatim, with what the Buddha just said about the fourth jhana and the cities that naturally come as a result of that, you'll find almost verbatim the kind of practices you are to do when you're practicing dream yoga. Make the one many, the many one. Walk on water, walk through walls, fly through the sky, etc. It's like, but you just lifted that from dream yoga. You just poached dream yoga teachings. Right? If you're not lucid, you can't do any of those things. If you're not lucid, you're just a victim all the time. Oh, I missed my train. Oh, he, oh, he was angry at me. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, you're just bumping around into solid objects all the time, reifying everything, totally deluded out of your gourd, you know, with no power at all. So you're living in a non-relativistic dream. You can't do nothing, you know. And then become lucid. And now you can transform your own body from one to many, many to one. Many people become one. A forest becomes a tree. A little tree becomes a giant tree. A fruit becomes a, a vegetable, and so forth and so on. You play. You play. You know. So it's the same. But that's just by what's, what's remarkable about that. It's just by the power of samadhi. Cities come by realizing emptiness. That's kind of like, yeah, well, that, that should happen. Cities come by realizing rigpa. That should happen for sure. But what's remarkable here is even just comes by flat-out samadhi itself. You know. So perhaps our world is poised 
to have a, the first, and thus, yeah, the first and absolutely major revolution in the, science, the, the mind sciences when we discover there's kind of non-relativistic psychology that when the mind becomes empowered, like a laser, like a laser becomes empowered, then the laws of physics start going to meltdown. The laws of biology, your brain doesn't go dead if you don't get any oxygen for two weeks. You know. The laws of biology, laws of chemistry, physics, they all melt down. They're going to melt down, they're going to a singularity. Because the mind has always had a role in nature. Always had that mind, that mind, this little light of mind, that straight finger, that mind that is like a laser. It's always had a role in nature. But as long as its power is not manifested, and it's just dysfunctional, you know, dysfunctional, then the power is to create big buildings and bombs and bridges and cell phones. Well, that's the mind doing all of that, which is kind of cool. But it's never coming to its own strength. Right? So, everybody here, everybody listening to podcasts, let's bring about a revolution. You know, really, it's high time. And this world really needs it. We've been sucking in this Neanderthal cave of materialism for 150 years now. We're strangling. We're suffocating. You know, in that mind-numbing worldview that sucks all the life force out. They're like dementors. You know, you leave you as a dry husk. That's what you get with materialism. So let's not just complain about it, argue it, and write more books. I think I've written all the books. I've, you know, even I'm tired of writing books against it. Nobody's reading them anyway. <laughs> like, oh, one more book. So, let's just do it. Let's do it. So that's that. Mindfulness of breathing. So simple. Really easy. So let's continue. See you this afternoon. <laughs>